Something just flashed there. Yeah, I turned it on. You turned it on? Right. Okay, I turned mine on. Oh, that was all recording. I'm gonna read you a couple, the two comments that I got. One said, this was amazing to watch and I'm totally subscribed. I learned a lot. I love listening to you and your dad. And then the other comment that was really lovely wrote, this presentation is honest, revealing, vulnerable, respectful, and totally unabashedly authentic. I don't know about you, but this sounds like Christian love to me. There you go, hey, cool. Three actual people subscribe to this channel. <laughs> like, comment, subscribe, do the YouTube thing. Welcome to another episode of The Prodigal Daughter. I am Paula. I'm Randy. And this is our study of... Doctrine and Covenants section 106, 107, and 108 in the Come Follow Me manual. Where do you want to start today? Well, I think we need to start out in 106 and 108 since these were personal revelations that Joseph Smith received to Warren Cowdery, who is the brother of Oliver, and also uh, Lyman Sherman. I read the uh, Revelations in Context, which is from some of the church publications. Very insightful, gave a little bit more information about the individual, and plus it drew some more information from other uh, texts such as the Joe Smith papers and, and like that. So anyway, I always like the history part of it too and also what happened to these people. Did they stay faithful to their testimonies? Did they follow another path? Or exactly what happened to them? From what I understand, both these people were, were very, very faithful. And even though you don't hear about them much, I kind of compare them with just normal members of the church that you aren't, did not serve on the council of the uh, 12 apostles or uh, Lyman Sherman served in the in the 70s. He was later called to become one of the apostles, but he died before he was able to even know about that calling and mm -hmm. to serve in that position. But we knew he was he was faithful, so it's kind of interesting. So so some of the things that I I learned from the revelations that were written to them, and I always like to look at these and find little scriptures that help me out or help me to be able to reflect on uh, my life. And one thing that was particularly interesting is Warren Cowdery's in verse 3 of section 106 and devote his whole time to this high calling, high and holy calling, which I now give unto him, seeking diligently the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all things necessary shall be added thereunto, for the labor is worthy of his hire. It sounds like he, it was a full-time calling. If he was faithful in it, that the Lord would bless him all things necessary, it should be added thereunto. So his family would be provided for. And to me, that really takes a lot of faith to be able to do that. And luckily in today's church, you're not really expected to give up your, your income or um, give up your job or to be able to provide the time to do your church calling. In fact, it's actually in a way frowned upon that you give so much time to the church because you should be balanced in your dedication. Sometimes there's uh, some calling may require a little bit more time out of the home or less or whatever. And so therefore, a person should really balance that and make sure that other things are not getting neglected in their life because that's just as bad as as not doing the callings. I know I found in my life when I've had the opportunity to serve in the church that it's been a blessing in my life, but I always tried to keep it where it wasn't my main focus. As your daughter growing up, I never got the impression that like the church was more important than we were. You never spent so much time that we felt neglected or like chosen second to what you were doing. So I always felt like you had a, a good balance there with what you were doing. Thank you. I appreciate that. And also it talks 
talks about in verse 4 and 5, And again, verily I say unto you, The coming of the Lord draweth nigh, and overtaketh the world as a thief in the night. Therefore gird up your loins, that you may be the children of light, and that that day shall not overtake you as a thief. So we need to be ready for the second coming. I mean, it almost sounds like there that the second coming was going to come right away. But obviously, we don't know when it's going to come. Whether it's the Lord's second coming, or maybe it's death will come premature. And so we always need to be ready in our life to be able to meet the Savior and receive Him. We need to uh, live our lives in accordance to, 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 to always be ready. My my thinking of the second coming has always been like, you know, Jesus is going to come in fanfare and whatever and just completely obliterate like the worldly powers that be or whatever. But when Jesus first came, obviously he came to the poor and downtrodden. He transformed lives one by one, etc. And I think that the whole downfall of worldly powers happens when we actually convert to Jesus. And the more people are converted, the more worldly power structures are dismantled. However, but what I was thinking as well is like not just our actual physical death, but our spiritual death as well. Like when Jesus comes a knock in, I always say that God to me, how this happened, how like my transformation and my conversion was God was the Kool-Aid man. And if you remember the Kool-Aid man back in the 80s, or 60s. Right, and he would bust through the he walls. Busted, he busts through the walls. Right. He makes a complete mess. He's so happy to be there, and you're so happy to have the Kool-Aid, and because the Kool-Aid man is great, but he's also destroying your home in order to like get in and hang out with you. And so, to me, my experience with God is like God is a Kool-Aid man. And so to me, when I read this, I'm like, oh, be prepared for God to destroy your life. And I mean that in like the best possible and great way. Like it's great and terrible to quote the scriptures. I also thought of Harry Potter as I was reading this section. And I thought about Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows. The third brother, it is said, met death as an old friend. My question ever since my life implosion has been, how do I greet death as an old friend? How do I greet God's presence in my life, the destruction or the loss of things that aren't actually correct? How do I greet actual death as an old friend, as something to be ready for and comforted by? As I was reading this chapter, like the, the phrase in verse eight, grace and assurance really stood out to me because I feel like I've been able to access some of that with regard to death or the second coming or whatever in the past eight years. I was, I had an ultrasound this week because they found a mass in my left breast. And so they had to go in and do an ultrasound, redo the mammogram, kind of figure out what's going on. They want a biopsy. I think it'll be fine. But as I'm laying there on the table and they're examining me, I'm thinking, okay, is, let me take inventory of my life, right? Am I at peace with who I am as a human being, what I have done in this life, what I have put out there, how I have treated people? Am I okay if this turns out really bad and I die in two months? from cancer, am I okay with that? And it, like all these feelings of like gratitude and assurance and grace just filled me. And I really loved the phrase grace and assurance. And I think it's something that we can access in our lives, something that God does give away in abundance if we're willing to just kind of like open ourselves up and feel grace and assurance. And if we're constantly feeling this grace and assurance, we're not gonna be surprised by them. We're gonna be like, oh, hey thief, I was expecting you because I understand how God works. Christ is coming today. 
open up my door, we're ready for them. Okay. You know? I totally agree as far as grace is what helps us out and gives us, uh, fills in our shortcomings, if you will. Um, and we talked about this last week about grace and, and the enabling power of the, of the atonement of his grace. So therefore, grace, the blessings are the enabling power of the atonement and assurance. Assurance is, I think, what the peace that you felt mm -hmm. that, hey, I, I did okay. I, I, I did as much as I could, and I personally always worry about, am I doing everything I should? Is the Lord, am I going this amount, and then the Lord is going to make up the difference, but am I doing my part? And so I'm always worried, did I do enough, or am I should be doing more? And I know I should be doing more, because I know Randy Baker knows his shortcomings and what he needs to improve in. And hopefully I'll be able to take care of that before the, the second coming, when the thief in the night does come. Okay, section 108, of course, was given to uh, Lyman Sherman, and he kind of petitioned Joseph Smith to find out what his standing was with the Lord. And one scripture that jumped out at me is 108 verse 3, when he says, And rise up, and be more careful henceforth in observing your vows, or which I consider covenants, which you have made and do make, and you shall be blessed with exceeding great blessing. Of course, the covenant that all members of the church have made is when they're at, at baptism. We just had the opportunity of, of attending my granddaughter, Paula's uh, niece's baptism, and to be able to see the, the, that now she is has entered into a covenant with our Heavenly Father. And later on, we all make other covenants, whether it be the priesthood covenant, as we're going to be talking about later on, the covenants through the priesthood, and then all also our temple covenant. I think covenants are very important in keeping our promises and it helps us to be able to adhere to the standards that we have, not really the rules or the commandments, but the standards that we have in trying to get back to our Heavenly Father. Um, and so our covenants help us to be able to, to do that. Now, how do we review the covenants? Nowadays, every Sunday, if we uh, have our sacrament meeting at our home or we go to the ward building and have it, participate in the sacrament, and it gives us an opportunity to renew those covenants that we've made. Personally, I feel like it's renewing those covenants, all the covenants we've made, whether at baptism or in the temple. And also what we need to do really during the week too is to ponder those covenants that we've made. If we have quiet time or if we're just, you know, driving, not have the radio on, then we think about those covenants and, and kind of gives ourselves a, a self-evaluation, uh, how, how we're doing on those covenants. You know, I don't know if you saw it or not, Paula, there's a great video on uh, Book of Mormon Central about good for somebody to watch before they go to the temple as far as what to expect to go to, when they go to the temple from getting a recommend all the way uh, all the way through. And so anyway, it's a really excellent video. And, and it reviews the covenants which are written in the, are in the general handbook of instructions so mm -hmm. it wasn't that they were talking about something that is not published. So it gives us a chance to review them and think about how we're doing. Go, go and share your thoughts about that if you if you have any and then it would be okay. Is it okay if I tell you about, uh, read my chainsaw story about my covenants? Does that be appropriate? Yes, that's totally fine. Okay, we'll read that story after I talk about my stuff because that'll- Okay, no, no, I, I know that's what I say. Then we can, then we can leave this section on a happy note. Okay. okay. So 
here's I'm of two minds of this section 108 okay because like as I'm reading it I feel like there's so much comfort in here for this Lyman dude in verse 2 when he's like let your soul be at rest concerning your spiritual standing and resist no more my voice and it made me think back to the grace and assurance from 106 it, because that grace and assurance to me is when when you have that in your life in your soul when it's like embedded in like your body and you're taking that with you into different situations, right? Your soul is really at rest. Ever since, you know, my life implosion, uh, my soul is at rest to where I don't feel like I have high anxiety over, you know, whether I've done enough or like if I'm obeying the commandments or what I need to do more or whatever. I don't have that constant loop running in my head anymore. And I feel like I'm at rest and I am less resistant both to God's voice saying it's okay to rest it's okay to feel reassurance it's okay to feel and and like live in grace but also I don't resist as much uh, last week I talked a little bit about how like I feel like for the first 31 32 years of my life I was worshiping this God that wasn't actually real like this God who was a little bit of a, an abusive dick <laughs> to put it mildly and so once I was able to kind of say okay I don't feel like this is the God I want to try and worship anymore when I actually started to say the God I'm attempting to worship worship isn't actually worthy of my worship, I'm gonna go and find a new one. I felt like I was no longer resisting the voice of a God that is love. And I also feel like I don't resist as much God's call to difficult actions or when God is calling me to, hey, you really should do better in this area. Okay, so that's section 108. Anything else you wanna talk about section 108? Oh, he wanted to share his chainsaw story. Okay. I thought I'd read it rather than tell it. I just, because I, I'm better at writing. Okay, this is the story. I hate pull starting a two-stroke engine. I grumbled as I sat down on the tailgate of my truck up to catch up my breath. I had borrowed an 18-inch bar chainsaw from my good friend La Chapelle to cut up some stumps and trunks from an ash tree that I had cut down from the backyard. They were located at the house that we had bought from my deceased parents' estate. The, the saw was running fine until I stopped to refuel and to fill the chain oiler. Now the darn thing would not start. I made, made sure I was following the procedures that Lyle's son Zeb had told me, but it still did not start. I finally determined that I must have flooded it. Flooding in the engine is when too much gas has gotten into the combustion chamber, causing it not to start. In my previous attempts to start it, I would hold onto the saw with my left hand and pull the starter with my right hand. To correct the flooding problem, I would need to hold the throttle wide open with my right hand allowing more air into the combustion chamber while tugging on the pull starter on my left hand. After several tries, it finally started running. Unfortunately, the tugging motion pulled the chainsaw blade toward my left leg with the engine revving at full throttle. I suddenly real realized that I was going to cut off my left leg above my knee. I could feel the teeth of the blade tugging and tearing at the material of my pant leg. After it cut its way through the material, the engine stopped suddenly. Looking down at the torn pant leg, I could see my temple garment. Then the words of the temple garment covenant blessing flooded my mind. If I was faithful in the wearing of the temple garment, it would be shield and protection to me. Shaken and telling myself how stupid I was, I sat on the tailgate to gain my composure. Then I offered a prayer of gratitude to my Father in Heaven for the blessing of safety. I recalled how that morning when my wife and wife Patsy and I had had our morning prayer, we prayed for safety in our work and travel. I was very blessed with 
with safety. Even though I'm always striving to live up to all the covenants that I have made with my Father in heaven, I can say the wearing of the temple garment is one that I've always obeyed. One evening, when the grandchildren were visiting, I shared with them the story and bore testimony of the power of making and keeping our covenants. I hope they would always remember my story and my testimony. This was validated several months later when I was using a chainsaw cutting some railroad ties with my grandson Caden. He said, Grandpa, you are wearing your temple garments, aren't you? To which I replied, always, Caden, always. So that's just a testimony that I received and a blessing that I received for wearing my temple garment. And there's many other covenants that we make with our Father in heaven. And he will bless us if we strive, we do all we can uh, to be able to live up to those covenants. I know you have a lot of comments regarding this. Well, okay. uh, yeah, well, yeah, I do have, but I don't know, I, I, yeah, I have a lot of comments on the priesthood, but I don't know what I'm going to say, because I'm like, I'll just follow my dad's. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, 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 I was planning on just interjecting, just piggybacking you and saying, saying, well, this is the way I feel about this here. So let's just get started on 107, and I'll take the lead on this section, and you can interject. I have a lot to say on the priesthood. It's actually one of the last things that I let go of. Law of faith or testimony. Yeah, or yeah. I, I'm much more of a, maybe, is it the Lutherans who believe like in a priesthood of all believers? So we'll kind of get into this. Okay. okay. When it comes to the offices of the priesthood, they could potentially be like a physical or an earthly manifestation of like an actual spiritual truth or whatever. I was looking through the section and I was thinking about how they were discussing the need for additional people essentially okay, to okay. organize okay. the church, uh, right? Okay, and begin an, or an organization rather than having the, the priesthood was there, they could give blessings, they could do the ordinances, and so therefore, but they needed some type of organization because there was getting so many members. Exactly. It got me questioning the priesthood organization system hierarchy institution that the LDS church has was instituted in effect to serve its populace, to serve its members. We need to make sure that everyone is cared for in some way, that everyone has some okay. sort of person to come to, okay. you know, a bishop to go to when they need food from the storehouse. So it was put into place to serve the people. Okay, okay, which it was put in place to provide spiritual blessings and temporal blessings to the members. Yes. Okay. And my question is, and I don't know if this question will even kind of make sense to you, but my question is, is has it become something where people are now serving the institution where people are serving the system and upholding this hierarchy. And instead of it serving us, we're serving it. We're serving this thing that should actually be serving us. In the beginning, based on this chapter, I was really st struck by the idea of this was instituted in order to serve the rank and file members. My question is, sometimes I feel like now we serve the priesthood organization and the system and the institution rather than it serving us. So instead of asking like, how is the church handbook serving me as a member? It's how can I obey the church handbook so I don't get in trouble with the priesthood leaders and so I don't upset the power and the hierarchy that they have. When you look at people on both extremes of the mainstream LDS herd and what they're excommunicated for when it comes to apostasy, you have people more on the left like John DeLynn or Kate Kelly or Beal Real or all the other, you know, ex-Mormon white dudes that are just toxic as all get out. And then you have the people on the extreme right who are similar 
in the sense that both of them don't believe in the current priesthood authority of the LDS church. On the left, you can believe that Joseph Smith was a, an abusive con man. On the right, you can believe that Joseph Smith had it all right and he was a prophet of God. It doesn't matter how you feel about Joseph Smith. And it also doesn't matter how you feel about Jesus either. Over here, you have people who are like, maybe go into the atheist route or don't believe in Jesus Christ's divinity. And then over here, you have people who are like, love Jesus, etc. So the Jesus thing isn't the deciding factor here either. The deciding factor on the excommunication of people on both sides of the Mormon spectrum is current church leadership and priesthood organization and the actual prophet so-called that sit at the top of the hierarchy. So I guess what I'm going with this is there are people who really call into question, I think, this idea of is the current structure of the church one that a hierarchy and a system that serves the people, the rank and file, the marginalized, or is it a system where the rank and file are expected to serve the people at the top. So that is really kind of what struck me as I was reading this chapter. Issues with priesthood aside and like, I mean, I, I marched with ordained women on Temple Square. Like, I mean, I don't, the gendered priesthood makes no sense to me and I think it's unnecessary. But what struck me today as I was reading this was this idea of this system back in 1833 was put into place to serve the people. And I don't know how well, it's doing that in 2021. Thoughts on any of that? Okay. First of all, we got to go back to the basic. Did Christ have a church when he was here on earth? Not really. He kind you're, of started you're saying at he cults. Didn't, you're <laughs> saying he didn't have a church, even though he, he uh, ordained 12 apostles. It was supposed to continue on. Uh, he gave them authority to bind on earth mm -hmm. and to bound in heaven, okay? So it must have given something. And then, okay, let's assume he did. Then this is the true church of Jesus Christ. Do we need to have it in order to do the same thing? That's the question we got to ask. So therefore, how the priesthood is used, whether it's used to service people, to, to serve people, or to be able to have the work go on, or to make these, um, perform these ordinances and to make the covenants so that they are good on earth and also good in heaven. Uh, that is really the really the, the question. Not necessarily, and I'll be the first to agree that sometimes people do, are you saying zealots? Mormon zealots is zealots, yeah. okay? Mm -hmm. I mean, Jesus okay. technically was a zealot as well. Well, right, right. Reza Aslan wrote a whole book about right, it. Right, right. Anyway, he, he was a... He was a zealot. Yeah, he was for his own... Cause, yeah. I guess you could say. And so, therefore, um, okay, my train of thought just derailed. That is me every day of my life. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay, okay, let, let, let's get back to what the some of the uh, apostles said as far as quotation. Okay, but here's the thing. The, uh, can I respond to you okay. on that? Okay, I do think that Jesus granted, like, authority to some of his followers, okay. including the 12 men, including some of the women. Like, okay. Mary Magdalene was the apostles to the apostles, yo. I, I'm not debating the fact that like Jesus Christ like had this merry band of followers. I, what I would say is I read this post a year ago on Facebook and I'll try and find it and link it below, but it discussed the difference between Christianity and Christendom. Okay. And Christianity is what Jesus established Very this like yeah. thing where he is about serving the poor and vulnerability and, and toppling over power structures and redeeming people. Right. And then we somehow as human beings created Christendom, which is to me, the materialistic part of Christian 
Correct. Yeah. I mean, the cathedrals, uh, the, the, the the Mormon the, temples, the, the, the able to uh, go in and kill people in the name of uh, Christendom. Yes, which okay. we did with the Mountain Meadow massacres. You have the right idea between Christianity and Christendom. I'm saying, I guess, that what Joseph Smith established was a different kind of Christianity. What we became was a new form of Christendom. I, just something for y'all to think about. Yeah, yeah, think about. It. We're getting off the subject of the priesthood. Yes. The okay. priesthood. I guess the point of that is the priesthood should be used to serve. That is the point of the priesthood. Very true. Very yeah. true. And 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 through that priesthood, people are should be blessed, or through the, the priesthood keys, which everybody who is uh, called to a calling or asked to serve is serving under somebody who has those priesthood keys. So me as a as a Sunday school teacher in my ward, I serve under the priesthood keys of the bishop because the bishop bishop has the priesthood keys of that ward. And then he acts under the priesthood keys of the stake president, which, you know, sometimes I think about it, the stake president is actually the president of the church in that geographical area. Hmm, that's because he has 12 people on the high council, okay? And he has counselors. And so I kind of look at, look at that, that he's... He's the president of the church in that area. Going back, I, I made a note here that I realized might be applicable to what I was just saying about the whole, this organization was established to serve the people better as, and we've now we serve this organization um, and this hierarchy and power structure and this system. I'm wondering if the reason for the change, at least in my mind, is the fact that maybe around this time when things were getting established, we begun to view prophets as the same as a priest. So if I recall correctly, in the Old Testament coming next year, very few times in the Old Testament were the high priest, the leaders with political power, the high-ranking religious officials, not often were those folks the prophets. The prophets were the really weird weirdos. And I also think of Jesus, the least of these are the leaders. Like the people who we think are on the bottom of the pile when it comes to power, the people who have the least worldly power, those are the people who actually are the leaders. They are the ones who are going to be first. And so maybe, the change happened when we started to see prophets not as people who are on the margins of society, but the people with the institutional power. And so that's kind of a lot. I don't know if you understood any of that, but some of my yeah. ilk will yeah. understand it. I wonder if that's where the problem comes. Like the fact that we're not following the marginalized in the church for revelation, we're following the people with the most power. Well, I wouldn't say, I don't know, you, you may think power, I think it as the, the priesthood keys, the ones that have been called at that time to be able to serve in that position. Yeah. Um, such as, okay, sometimes when you have a ward, is it saying that, okay, when you have a ward, you have a bishop. And when that bishop's released, we don't, but when he, he was serving, we esteemed his, him as the bishop. We listened to his counsel. We listened to his advice. We appreciated having him. But when, as soon as he's released, it seems like we don't, we don't go to him for advice. We don't go to, even though it's the same person, personality and like that, we don't go to him for advice. We go to the new bishop that has been called. It's because they have the priesthood keys of a judge in Israel, of a person that's called at that time, the special inspiration 
inspiration that maybe counsel they can give as he leads the ward. And so therefore, we sustain the calling of that individual by listening to his counsel. And then when he's released, we don't do it anymore. Like I would say the only difference maybe between how I treat Nelson and how you treat Nelson is the fact that like I don't revere him as a prophet like I would James Baldwin the writer from the 1960s in the civil rights movement. I listen to Nelson because I recognize his authority within the church. It's important for me to understand what he is saying to millions upon millions of members. It's important for, I guess, me to understand what he's saying so that I can, you know, have conversations with you or other people about whatever. But I think the difference is this whole priesthood keys. I consider that just, you are just the person called at this time to be at the head of the church and to you that is a prophet and to me that's just a dude. A person in charge. I don't even debate the fact that like Nelson is the correct leader for the church at this time. Like okay. I wouldn't even say that like the fact that he is the head honcho is wrong. I don't think that it, I think that he's perfect for the church right now and we deserve Nelson as a leader just like we deserved Trump as a leader. Trump as awful as he was in my mind, like we kind of deserved him at least as white folk because because like we deserve him because we're awful people too and he's just like a mirror to our awfulness <laughs> if we want to talk politics. So I kind of think of Nelson in the same way. He is a leader for our time and we deserve this leader and this leader was called to lead us because of who we are as a people not necessarily because of because of who he is as an individual. So that's obviously you know, convoluted. What, you know, what, one thing is we talk about priesthood offices Yeah. Uh, in section 107 we must always remember that this church is a living church yeah which i mean is that things have changed yeah um i've seen more things change in the past 20 years regarding the church the administration of it such as ordaining an 11 year old boy but you know it hasn't been hard to accept because i believe that president nelson is the prophet and we have 15 prophets and apostles and so therefore what they uh what counsel they reserve re receive is most important thing is that how does randy baker accept that the changes and all that that's gonna be the sure test and so that's why the church is constantly changing. I have a real issue sometime of the way the church accepts social media because I'm not a social media person. And so, but yet I know it must be right because the church is doing it. The leaders are absorbing it. They have their Facebook pages and their Twitter and all that other stuff that I don't know nothing about. So it must be good. So I've got, it's my responsibility to accept it. Paula's grandma had the hardest time when they would send the Relief Society newsletter or something out an email rather than mailing it to her because it was email. Hard for her to accept that. Most important thing is that we sustain them myself sustain them as prophets seers and revelators and follow the council that's what i'm going to be judged on okay so i would say two things with regard i'm going to hop on that whole like grandma was upset about the whole email newsletter the elderly in our wards are the vulnerable people in our wards that we need to serve right. so we not only need to serve the people at the center who like it's just easier just email it to me but we also need to keep in mind that like can we keep things accessible for everyone in the population right. so to me right. that's an accessibility issue right. that she kind of had a right to be upset about because yeah. we should be should, making accommodations. To, yeah. Two, with regard to the change, and especially since Nelson has come into office, like there's been so many changes, I can't keep up. Like I feel like I'm gonna have a heart attack, and I and I am yeah. relatively young. 
I guess I would say I don't think it was ever hard for me to accept church changes and I honestly don't know that it's completely difficult for me to accept church changes now. I've always been a pretty adaptable person. Over the last few years the thing that I have struggled with isn't the change itself but the lack of recognition of the harm and trauma that past policies has, have provided. So let's say I come up to you and I shoot you with a gun and you're bleeding out, you're in pain, you're gonna live with this wound essentially for the rest of your life because now you can't walk correctly because I shot you in the leg. Mm -hmm. Long lasting effects of this situation. Mm -hmm. Someone comes up to me and they say, oh, Paula, let me take the gun away. Our policy has changed. Now you don't get a gun. You know, we're causing less harm. Going forward, we're gonna do better and we're not gonna give you a gun. How, that's great. I don't have a gun anymore. I can't cause the harm I was causing. You are still bleeding out in the road and your life is forever changed and you cannot walk correctly mm -hmm. for the rest of your life. With all of these changes, the most difficult thing for me isn't the actual policy change. The difficult thing for me is the lack of recognition that people are still in the road, people are still traumatized and working through that. And a simple policy change cannot go back and reverse time and present, like prevent the trauma that occurred. So earlier in the conversation, you mentioned how all of the temple covenants are now in the church handbook and how there's great video on YouTube, Book of Mormon Central about preparing for the temple and like kind of what to expect to make sure that people are blindsided, mm -hmm. right? Fantastic. I'm glad that we're being open with that. I'm glad that there's resources around. The temple was so traumatizing to me that I had nightmares for 10 years about it. And I only went back one time because it was so difficult for me. And I felt like I was dissociating from my body. It was completely like, I could, Evan was so scared that I, like I got my endowment on a Tuesday. My now ex, fiance then, was so scared for like four days that I wouldn't even go back to the temple to marry him, right? Yeah. And I wanted to marry him, so I went back. But the whole four days, I was sick knowing that I had to go back to this place to marry this person that I loved. And those effects lasted for 10 years for me. Nightmares, I couldn't go back as much as I like wanted to go back um, because I knew it was the right thing to do or whatever. I never attended any of my sister's endowments. I lied and said I was busy. I would go on trips because I could not go back there. I went to a couple of ceilings, but then I didn't have to do all the temple. It wasn't the ceiling that was the problem. It was the endowment. So I would say that like, yes, it's wonderful that these changes are made, that people probably won't have the experience that I had 20 years ago now, but that doesn't help 2008 year old, 2008 Paula, yeah, who true. was terrified driving home every day mm -hmm. on the Maricopa Road because I knew that I hadn't gone back to the temple again. And if I died, I would probably go to hell. Like you can't, like that terror that I felt for years, that just doesn't go away just because of a simple policy change. It's harm reduction for future generations. It does not help the traumatized or the spiritually abused. So that to me is like, I'm totally great with the changes. I'm so happy that the church is making changes. Women can be witnesses. Like, like the temple covenants are more equal. Like we're not covenanting to obey or hearken to our husbands anymore. Like it's great, changes are great. We can't turn back time and undo that trauma. We actually have to reckon with it and be accountable for it. And when we're not mentioning the fact that these changes are happening because we know better or we're sorry that we didn't do this before or we were wrong for this or this or this or when there's no recognition that people have been hurt 
it's really hard. It makes people feel angry. It makes people feel betrayed. It makes people, people, me feel like my experiences aren't valid. Like I spent 10 years in shame over the temple and now I feel shame because now I shouldn't be upset because how great is it that they change things, right? I, I guess I, I, I appreciate the changes. I just want recognition and I just want to acknowledge any of our people out there who like struggle with the changes, not because the changes aren't good, but because the changes don't acknowledge a really, really terrible situation that you were put through. Do you have any responses to that? No, I, I'm just, you know, because I was kind of in the same way you were. In fact, it was even worse. See, like when we, when I went through. Yeah. For, for my endowments, I it was similar trauma. Yeah. It wasn't even talked about even less as far as yes. the temple. Mm -hmm. Okay. But exactly, you know, why did I go back? Why mm -hmm. did I do that? You know, I don't really know why. As far as how to address the issue, you know, firstly, I, I would say, first, first of all, I guess there's a thing called faith. Faith mm -hmm. that you are, okay, I'm following, I'm doing what, even though I was traumatized, I was scared, I believe, don't, I don't, can't say at that time where you're on the testimony coattails of mom and dad. No, I, um, I don't think I was. You know, you know, did you have your own testimony or was it, it was, were we expecting more of you to have more faith to just accept this is the way it was, even though there wasn't anything bad happened to you at the temple as far as touching inappropriately. Um, By the way, we're, uh, that he's referencing back before 2000, 2005, they changed this, but before 2005, they would put you in a shield before you got the garment and they would actually touch uh, places on your body while you were naked. Yeah. Um, so that's what he's referring yeah, to. Yeah. So I don't know how to tell you, my answer would be that you have faith, Mm -hmm. You exercise the atonement and say, Lord, I didn't understand this. Maybe have a desire to go back and learn more. Mm. Why we do certain things in the temple. Why to understand the, uh, the temple ceremony more. To be able to go back and be able to... Um, learn more about it as you're personally witnessing going through it as far as the changes go and and how much different is you know because you know I, i've seen a lot of changes especially in the temple but anyway i i don't know i i can i can respect your your feelings and the way you felt and first of all i appreciate you talking that's one conversation about this uh, youtube audience is is it's helping me to understand my feelings of my daughter and knowing what I can do to help out, mm -hmm. you know, to recognize where she's coming from. It's one of the things, maybe I could be a better grandfather since I can't be a father anymore, to, <laughs> to be able to help out my grandchildren in their challenges. As far as me personally helping her out, I don't know. I just continue to love her and care about her and serve her and do anything I can so that maybe she'll overcome this challenge that I think she has. Okay. okay. Um, I mean, her, her feelings. Okay. Yeah. Um, I would say, it, oh, go ahead. It, it's not my responsibility to judge her as far as what she's gone through. Just continue going forward as a father to love her, to care about her. And so that maybe someday she will begin to believe the way I want her to believe. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's all I can say. She has her agency. I feel the same she, way about you, dad. <laughs> she, she, has her, she, like has her, she has her agency. No, I, 
I really love that and I respect it. And I feel like you've become a person who is able to hear my pain. Whereas like 10 years ago, I don't know that you would be able to hear Very that true. and actually take it in, right? And so it's all because of the this fact thing. that like, yeah, no, you've transformed over the last 10 years just as I have. I really feel like, especially section 107, mm -hmm. because there is was set in place an organization that the church continued to grow, continued to be able to serve, those who needed uh, served through the priesthood. And so therefore it made others become better, become more like their savior, Jesus Christ. And so that's why the, the blessings of the priesthood I have enjoyed in my life as a father to be able to give blessings, to be able to participate in ordinances, to be able to hopefully set the example to my family through the priesthood to be able to lift them up to exaltation. Quote by by Elder Oaks, we are accustomed to speaking of women having authority of the priesthood in the church callings, but what authority can it be? When a woman, young or old, is set apart to preach the gospel or full-time missionary, she is given the priesthood authority to perform a priesthood function. The same is true when a woman is set apart to function as an officer or teacher in a church organization under the direction of the one who holds the keys of the priesthood. Whoever functioning in that office or calling received from one who holds the priesthood keys exercise priesthood authority in performing her or his assigned duties. Even though a, a woman is not able to I won't even say give blessings, but we know in the case in church history where they have given priesthood blessings. The most important thing is that the woman can receive just as many blessings eternally as a man can through the priesthood. She can get to the highest place in the celestial kingdom. She can uh, receive all those blessings because of the priesthood. She doesn't have to hold the priesthood in order to get that. I completely agree with that about the whole like equal and blessings or whatever. Um, and I think that the rhetoric and like even like the temple language has shifted towards that. Part of my response is I don't care about the blessings <laughs> like, like that's not what I'm in it for like I want more opportunities to serve in certain callings I remember years ago five years ago now my I this person that I was seeing um in therapy I had found out that he was called as a bishop I went home because I had I, something was coming up and I wasn't sure what exactly was, was being triggered in me. And I remember waking up like at two o'clock in the morning and just sobbing. And I, the only words that came to my mind was, I'm not a bishop's wife. I'm, I am the bishop. My, my gifts, the things that I'm able to do are more in line with a bishop than a bishop's wife. And just the realization that I, I, I will never serve in that capacity in, in the Mormon church. Now it's for several other reasons. I'm an apostate. They're not going to call me to be bishop. I feel like I have gifts that I'm going to pour into a PhD in counseling psychology. Eventually, I will receive training and guidance in order to better guide others and help them work through their stuff. But there's no place for me to do that in the church because I have a vagina. Like, it's just luck of the draw. I get, I understand the blessings thing that I have no problem with that. I have no issues with that. It's the lack of opportunity to like use my gifts my spiritual gifts within the LDS institution that was a struggle for me. One of the things that I guess was shocking to me 
one of the things that was so shocking to me once I got into the real world was how equally you treated us as daughters. So there's all daughters in the family, no sons. And my dad went out of his way to treat us just as well as the young men in the ward were treated. He would do the daddy-daughter campouts because he knew that there were usually fathers and sons. So he's established that. Because we didn't have eagle courts of honor or whatever, he would make this huge deal of our young women's awards where once we got through all of the goals and personal progress, he would set up a night and it would be like an Eagle Court of Honor and we would have a slideshow and we would have talks and we would have dinners and it would be this huge formal event at the actual church building. So like none of my issues come from you <laughs> on this. Maybe this goes back to, what is it? The ending of 107 from verses 99 to 100. Wherefore, now let every man learn his duty to act in the office of which he is appointed in all diligence. He that is slothful shall not be counted worthy to stand. He that learns not his duty and shows himself not approved shall not be counted worthy, worthy to stand. And what I got from this is the importance of learning what our duty is, learning what our call is, and fulfilling that call diligently. And I'm one of these people where I feel like callings in the church are just symbolic of our callings in life. There's this notion in larger Christianity about someone's like vocation or like life's purpose or whatever, where you just kind of, you you discern what God is calling you into and you move in that direction. That's essentially what LDS callings are symbolic of, is put in these situations where we have stewardship by virtue of the fact that God has called us to that place. I guess my question is, what does that mean in the larger sense? Like if we're all part of the body of Christ, we all have a role to play, my job in life is to discern, am I a heart cell? Am I a piece of the toenail? Am I part of the eardrum? Am I like part of the skull bone? Who am I in the body of Christ? And fulfill that to the greatest of my ability. If I am actually a heart cell, but everyone's telling me I'm a toenail and I'm like trying to be a toenail and like trying to be a diligent to toenail, that, that doesn't work for anyone. That's gonna harm the body because I'm not working as a heart cell right? I need to be doing my duty here to pump the flow of the heart. I, the whole body falls apart, right? If I try to be something that I'm not, if I'm in a place that God hasn't necessarily called me to, really what we need to do is figure out who we actually are. Are we a toenail? Are we a heart cell? Are we a piece of the skull? And live into that as hard and be as diligent as we can be doing that. And then essentially what we're doing as a people, as a Mormon people, is we take that larger calling into bishop, into Sunday school teacher. The calling of heart cell is always going to be like my calling. Like I always talk about how I'm part of the heart. That's always going to be my calling wherever I'm actually called to go, whether it's graduate school in this place or in this job or whatever. I'm taking my heart cellness into that calling. And so I think that that's really what the place that I almost had to come to when it came to priesthood is like kind of letting go of the whole thing and saying, what are these offices and what is the structure really alluding to when it comes to the body of Christ, when it comes to humanity, when it comes to serving humanity, etc.? How do I access that and then bring that into these other more specific areas that I'm called to? What is kind of your response to all of that? Well, I think uh, I can understand where you come from there. But first of all, I feel like the Lord can turn a toenail cell into a heart cell because he has the power to be able to do that. So he can be able to help you to be able to fulfill 
a calling, even though you're not, you don't think you're cut out to do it. Mm -hmm. Okay. He qualifies who he, he calls. qualifies you. Okay. So therefore he could help you do that because he could change lives and he could help you, inspire you, help, help you to be able to be that person that you need to be. Sometimes it's out of our comfort zone. Sometimes not. Sometimes it's a natural ability that we have that we need to do in the calling. Or sometimes we have to grow into the calling. So all different ways. So that's kind of the way I feel like about that. One thing too, though, we have to, we cannot come in serving the church. We need to abide by certain doctrines, certain, the way things done. We just can't go off on our own philosophies, on our own feelings and teach them in the church and accept it and expect it to be accepted as doctrine. Yeah, no, okay. I mean, they're never going to call me to a calling again. I say this all the time. Like they're, I'm doing this podcast, YouTube channel because they ain't calling me to a calling well, okay, ever okay, again. Okay. Like, like, I guess sometimes it's a matter of looking at, well, why won't they? Because I'm an apostate. Like this is, this is exactly what we talked about last week. Because I'm an apostate and I refuse to uphold like well, worldly I know, power I know, structure. I know, that's just it. That's where you, you know, I guess you accept it. But, yeah, no, I, I've accepted, I've come to peace with it. But so, she should be called as a daughter. Yes, she yes, be because that, that is assigned and, and, and forced onto us by God. So, 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 so anyway, most important thing we want you to have out of this is that my feeling is, my testimony is that the priesthood is here to help us all to be able to return back to our Heavenly Father by earning, by entering into our covenants here, receiving the ordinances so that we can go back to him. That's a good way to end it. Okay. Okay, we'll see you next week. Okay.